In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, I don't often notice this, but I feel like pointing it out tonight. The, the tune of that hymn is called St. Bees, B-E-S. I just think that's amazing. So, um, um, but anyway, uh, it's good to see you all here this evening um, as we continue through Eastertide on this, the third Sunday of Easter. And so we continue to experience and rejoice in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We're, we're, we're made to be mindful again this week of the fact that it's not just a day that we celebrate the resurrection, but every Sunday is a little Easter, but particularly during Eastertide, we continue to have opportunity to reflect on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And again, as we go through Eastertide, our Old Testament lessons actually come from the book of Acts, um, and so we're able to see how the early church grew and, and how they responded to uh, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then we're also given opportunity uh, in this year, C, to spend time in the book of Revelation. And so I pray that you would continue to be mindful that we are in Eastertide. Um, I think I mentioned a number of months ago, right after Christmas, you know, it used to, used to be that I think you had to be in liturgical churches to really get that Easter was a season and or Christmas was a season. Now everyone talks about it. And then, you know, because it seems to be a competition about who can keep things like Christmas tide the best, you know, now all of a sudden, if you took your tree down before January 6th, shame on you. But now it's Michaelmas. Now you can't take your tree down until, um, you know, much later or something like that. And so it's just getting uh, to be to be crazy. But Easter we mark it eventually on the 40th day with the Ascension and on the 50th day with Pentecost. And so, um, so we have opportunity to continue walking through this season with Jesus. And tonight I want to reflect on an element of each of our passages that calls to mind this Easter season, if you will, or perhaps more appropriately, our response to this Easter season. I love this gospel reading, um, don't you? Uh, I love this gospel read, not only because Jesus has breakfast with his disciples, which is just such a normal, common thing to be doing. Uh, I, f I mean, I find it interesting. Jesus dies, he's resurrected, but, you know, feels the need to have breakfast with his disciples on this morning. Uh, some commentators want to read it eucharistically. Maybe that's true, but in this case, it seems like Jesus is just having breakfast with people who get up early in the morning to go fishing. But my, my favorite part of the text, of course, is Peter's response to understanding that it's Jesus who's calling them from the seashore, that he jumps into the water. He's so eager to get over to the shore to see the resurrected Jesus. And so we, we see here that Jesus appears to his disciples, right? They're, they're back doing normal things again. They're back fishing. And not back in the sense of like, the death and the resurrection and the initial confusion, right, detracted them from their fishing job. They are, they are back to doing these vocations that they were doing before Jesus had even called them to be his disciples. So in one sense, they're three years on now or so going back to work, to the mundane task of fishing. And I'm sorry, that's that's my own assessment of it. I don't think it has to be mundane, I guess. They, they could enjoy it very much, up early in the morning, catching fish for a living. But again, think about it. This is something they haven't done in a number of years, right? They've been following Jesus. That had become their primary vocation. But now, there they are, back to being fishermen again. 
And so they're in the water, not having a particularly great morning. Jesus shows up. The morning gets better, both because Jesus is there and because now they've caught enough fish to nearly break the nets, though they don't. And again, the disciples see the resurrected Jesus, right? They get to see him there on the seashore. That's the, the beauty of the resurrection is they can see Jesus again. Think even last week, Thomas's response, no, unless I touch him. And again, without offering a judgment on whether Thomas's perspective was good or bad or right or wrong or anything like that, the point is, is Thomas got to touch Jesus. So they get to see Jesus, right? The resurrected Jesus, evidence that this is not just a ghost of some sort or, or a, a disembodied soul walking around. They see the resurrected Jesus. And again, Peter is so excited in typical Peter fashion that he jumps into the water to swim to the shore as quickly as possible to meet Jesus. And then they eat together. So, and during this eating, he made himself known to his disciples in the breaking of bread. Right, again, maybe it's Eucharistic, but the point is they're having a meal together. And he makes himself known to his disciples by breaking bread with them. If it is Eucharistic, then it points to the central act that we do each week in our own worship service here, which is the Eucharist. Again, we don't think of the Eucharist is just the point, the thing that we're getting to, that would be dis- to disparage the liturgy of the word, the part of the service we're doing right now, right? We don't want to disparage the reading and preaching of the word of God or our confession, which falls in it, confession of faith and both our own personal confession of sin, our need to be praying for those in our community and around the world. But as Jesus makes himself known to his disciples in the breaking of bread, of course, we want to know Jesus in this way. We want to see Jesus, I hope right? We, we want to see him who was raised on our behalf. We want to see him who purchased our salvation. Um, again, maybe this fishing wasn't mundane, but I know that when my days of work get mundane, I, I'd love to see Jesus and eat some fish with him. It would be great. I need a break from grading papers or doing exams or whatever, whatever it is. But again, making himself known to them and they're able to see him It's a theme that I think we take away from the gospel and it carries on into our reading from the Acts of the Apostles, right? So the brief text that we have tonight from the book of Acts is part of a larger story. We could, in fact, have read all the way up to verse 20. There's an option in the lectionary is to extend the reading to verse 20, but this is a fairly familiar passage, I imagine, to most of us, but this is Saul's conversion to the Christian faith. Saul persecuted the Christians, killed the Christians. I mean, here we're told he's breathing threats and murder, breathing threats and murder, but he is a murderous person. He says so himself later in his own epistles that he had killed Christians, right? So this, this Saul who's breathing threats and murder against the disciples of Christ, he wants to go to the synagogues at Damascus to, to do what? Well, because now the rumor is there's Christians in Damascus. So Paul wants to go there to persecute them. Not sufficient that he's persecuting them around Jerusalem and the environs of the city of Jerusalem. He wants to go further afield. Let me go to Damascus and chase these people of the way, verse 2. And of course, as he was going to Damascus, as he approached Damascus, quote, suddenly a light from heaven shone around him and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? which seems to answer his own question. (laughs) And the voice says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. 
but rise and enter the city and you'll be told what you are to do. And of course, he does go into the city, but he's been blinded by this apparition of Jesus. And so um, he, he's blinded, but, but God sends, right? A Christian, a disciple to him. And, and eventually those scales fall off and, and Saul, now Paul, makes his way back to Jerusalem, no longer as a persecutor of the Christians, but as a Christian himself. But again, the point, I think, for us to notice in the way that the disciples got to see the resurrected Jesus, in his own way, Saul sees the resurrected Jesus. Um, those who have traveled to Rome with me um, won't, won't be surprised when I say my favorite image of this is Caravaggio, right? Caravaggio's conversion of Paul or Saul, when Saul is sitting there on the ground, and the way Caravaggio paints it is Saul is laying on the ground, and his, the groomsman of the horse is kind of trying to get the horse out of the way, and the horse is almost stepping on Paul, and Paul is laying on the ground, and his, his facial expression already implies that he's gone blind, but his hands are up, and he's having this experience, but the groomsman and the horse seem nonplussed about it all. Like, it's debatable whether or not Caravaggio thinks they're having the same experience or if they think he just fell off his horse in some sort of a fit or something like that. But, but Saul, Paul, certainly knows what's happening. And, and we know from the story that, that Jesus appears to him, right? That he hears him and he sees this light from heaven, right? So in the way in which Jesus chooses to present himself to Saul here in this ray of light and, and that he hears him again, like these disciples who saw Jesus, Paul's life is changed forever. He doesn't necessarily like Peter jump in the water, but he has a similar kind of reaction, which is to convert and get excited and to quit persecuting Christians instead to become a Christian, pouring out his life on behalf of the faith becoming the so-called doctor to the Gentiles. And, of course, in his epistles, we hear again and again about the kind of suffering that he endured as a believer. So, again, the disciples see the resurrected Jesus, and they desire, Peter in particular, to go and eat with him. And Paul sees and hears Jesus, and his life has changed forever. He now wants to be in complete service to Jesus. So then we have disciples who had followed Jesus, we have the man who persecuted the Christians and now becomes a Christian. And then in our reading from Revelation, we get to see that all creation, or at least all created creatures, humans and angels, worship God. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain, says the living creatures and the elders and the voice of many angels. This is, this is everyone who's around the throne there in this eschatological scene of worship. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature, John says, in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them. Right? Let me read that again. I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea. That's everywhere. I think that's John's point. I heard every living creature everywhere say to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. All creation is now worshiping God. Again, when this will take place, or if it's taking place now in some sense, but, but the point is, is we've gone from the disciples to the persecutor of the Christians to all created things worshiping God. 
Philippians had told us this is what is going to happen, that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Christ to the glory of God the Father. And here in Revelation, we, we see it. Again, we see all rational creation worshiping God. So let me suggest from these examples, from these texts tonight, that at the end of the day, we as human persons are what are often called in the literature homo liturgicus. We are worshiping people. That is who we are in our very being. People who worship. The question might be, what will you worship? Not, will you worship? Some people may worship false gods or other things, but we will worship something. And so the question becomes, who will we worship? What will we worship as worshiping human beings? Right? I mean, I think this is what often strikes my students about pagan literature is they're worshiping. The whole worldview, Greek and Roman worldview, is based on forms of worship, whether that's the household gods or their semi-divine heroes or whatever, but they're worshiping people. Why? Well, because I think, again, it's in the DNA of created creatures to be worshiping beings. And so we do have to ask ourselves, what or who will we worship? If that's who we're created to be, then when we see Jesus, do we jump in the water and swim to him? Right? Do we run to Jesus when given the opportunity? If God reveals himself to us in a particular way, do we, do we run to see him so their lives will be changed forever? Because again, that's who we're made to be. That's what Revelation 5 is depicting for us. Again, everything, every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them, they worship God. And that is us, and one day that will be us for all eternity, worshiping God. So we're worshiping people. Sorry, I meant to bring this over to begin with. Uh, and I think those who wrote the first book of Common Prayer understood this when they wrote this very first paragraph in the preface to the first book of Common Prayer, 1549. There was never anything by the wit of man so well devised or so sure established which in continuance of time hath not been corrupted, as among other things, it may plainly appear by the common prayers of the church, commonly called divine service. So in other words, nothing has been so well devised, so well established in continuance of time that it's not been corrupted as human worship of God, divine service. The first original and ground whereof, if a man would stretch out by the ancient fathers, he shall find that the same was not ordained, but of a good purpose and for a great advancement of godliness. In other words, go back to the earliest church fathers and they will tell you worship is what the Christian life is all about. For so they ordered the matter that all the whole Bible or the greatest part thereof should be read over once in a year, intending thereby that the clergy and especially such as were ministers of the congregation, should, by often reading and meditation of God's word, be stirred up to godliness themselves, and be more able to exhort others by wholesome doctrine, and to confute them that were adversaries to the truth. And further, that the people, so first it's clergy, now that the people, by daily hearing the Holy Scripture read in the church, should continually profit more and more in the knowledge of God, 
and be the more inflamed with the love of his true religion. Again, we're worshiping people. And so everyone knows that. So nothing has been better than that than this, by design than what we call the divine service, by worship. And yes, there is a moment here where the architects of the Anglican faith are saying, and we really do a cool job with it. And I'm okay with that kind of boasting. <laughs> I'm an Anglican. Why wouldn't I be? Right? But by, through the reading and meditation of God's word, people are stirred up to godliness, all people stirred up to godliness by this. Jeremy Taylor, in 1667, wrote this. The liturgy of the Church of England, he was a bishop in the Church of England, the liturgy of the Church of England hath advantages so many and so considerable as not only to raise itself above the devotions of other churches, so again, yay for Anglicans there, but to endear the affections of good people to be in love with liturgy in general. Right? That our liturgy has so many advantages that it endears the affections of good people to be in love with liturgy in general. In other words, you want to love liturgy? Be liturgical. You want to love the liturgy? Participate in the liturgy. And again, as the preface to the first book of Common Prayer says, it is what Christians do. Go back, look it up in the fathers. It's what we do. It benefits clergy. It benefits all people in the church. And then jumping ahead to just the 1960s, and I'm going to quote here from the Catechism of the Catholic Church, which is more recent than the 60s, but this echo goes back to Vatican II. The Eucharist is the source and summit of the Christian life. The Eucharist is the source and summit of the Christian life. So again, if we're made to be worshiping people, and if the church has always been about worship, and doing the liturgy endears you to love the liturgy more, and in this larger context of liturgy, the liturgy of the word and the liturgy of the table, if the Eucharist is a source and summit of the Christian life, then we are wired and pointed to do one thing as Christians, and that is to worship. Again, it's not will we worship, but what will we worship? And I was struck by the readings this week when I noticed, like, I want to worship like Peter. I want to jump in the water, swim to God, get there as quick as I can. I want to be like Paul. I want to see the light of God, be corrected in my misunderstandings, and come to a faith in him that grows and grows and grows. And I don't want to think of Revelation as just what's reserved for me in the future, but even now I want to join in on this worship of God. An insight I gained from the Eastern Orthodox Church when I studied their theology and doctoral work was this, that our worship here on earth is not only a foretaste of what is to come, but it's already a participation in that heavenly worship that is happening now. So this isn't just a poor copy. This is part of that great and heavenly worship. That what we're doing right now and what we do tonight is part of the heavenly worship of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that is going on now by the angels and those Christians who are already there at the throne of God. Worship. Worship. It's what we're made to do. And that's what we must do. And so when we make decisions about what we will worship, that's a serious decision with serious consequences. 
Am I going to worship things of the world? People of this world? Ideologies of the world? Philosophies of the world? Fill in the blank. What golden calf will I put in place of God? But if I choose to worship God, I need to follow that choice through. Like Peter, like Paul, like every living creature, I need to worship. What we do here each Sunday is of utmost importance. Worship is what we as Christians are called to do. Again, the preface to the Book of Common Prayer. Look back in the history of the church. It says this is what the church does. So every week we have an opportunity. We are faced with an opportunity to, get, to come together in order to worship as prescribed for us in the Book of Common Prayer, but also because if we are to follow through with this reasoning to think it is the most important thing that we do, it is the evidence of whom we are choosing to serve and worship, then in that sense, you can't do it unless we get together to do it. You've heard me say this before. I would, I think, I would choose to be a daily communicant. Communicant. I would like to have the Eucharist every day. But as a priest, I'm not going to confect the Eucharist every day for myself. Because the Eucharist isn't for me, it's for the church of God. I mean, it is for me, but it's the context is the church of God. But I wonder if we could get to a point where we all craved it so much, if we saw its value, it's, that it's essential to our lives. Not as an addition, not as something that should or could be fit in, but instead the very source and summit of what we do. Then we would have no choice but to have a Eucharist every day. Every priest in this parish, which is two and hopefully four soon, will be kept busy leading the congregation in worship. But even if we're not there, even if that's not whatever happens, let us bear in mind that, again, our job as Christians is to meet and to worship the living God. And though that doesn't happen just within the confines of these walls, it is appointed for it to happen within the confines of these walls. So let us live fully into the people that we were made to be, worshiping people. Let us be like Peter and jump out of that boat and swim to God. Let us be like Paul and see the light and be changed forever. And let us join with every creature in heaven and earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them and worship our God, saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And may we desire it more and more and more. In the name of God, Father, Son and Holy Spirit.